0: Land. Uh, Welcome back to Tour Guide Tell All. We are your friendly, hopefully, neighborhood tour guides in Washington, D.C. We are bringing you stories of all things interesting, scandalous, groundbreaking, innovative, uh, and fabulous. Uh, And I am one of your hosts, Rebecca. And I'm Becca. And we are the the Rebecca's. And today we are here to uh, talk to you guys. It's May. We have a beautiful slate of May episodes and we're ramping up our tours. And we wanted to just give a shout out to uh, all the hardworking tour guides who are getting back to work for the first time. And the while we're very excited about it uh we are going to do a full slate of may episodes and then we're going to go down to two a month plus a patreon episode for june and july and probably take a couple weeks off in august and then be back towards the end of august and september with a full uh slate of september and october episodes so just to give you an update on our schedule uh the tours are heating up in washington as is the weather. Uh, and so we are excited about that. But today we have actually a listener request. Uh, we had a request to do some more Jewish history. And so we thought, hey, we like to do we like to do what our listeners tell us to do. So see you guys if you propose something, you really will get it on the pod. So we wanted to do some Jewish history. And I thought what better to do than the first Jewish Supreme Court justice? And so we're going to talk about Louis Brandeis.
1: We have not talked extensively really about the Supreme Court. We've had some mentions here or there of some folks on the court, but this is kind of our first deep dive Into a Justice, uh, which I think is really interesting. And if you've listened, um, if you're a longtime listener, if you've listened to the pod last year, Brandeis overlaps with several other figures that we've highlighted kind of in this progressive era, that kind of turning tide from the late 19th century into the early 20th century. So this is like such a great choice. I'm so glad somebody pitched Jewish history and that our minds kind of went to Brandeis because I think he slots in really beautifully if you've been listening to the podcast. And if you haven't, we're going to mention some names today that um, you should definitely go back and listen to their episodes uh, to create a fuller picture. But yeah, our first Supreme Court justice. This is exciting. Our first on the pod, not the first ever, to be clear. This is
0: our first (laughs) dive into like Supreme Court stuff. And as a caveat, we just want to issue this. Becca and I are historians, not lawyers. So, first of all, do not
1: take any legal advice from us. (laughs) Please do not take any legal advice from us. Second of all,
0: if we get some of the complicated legal nuance of uh, some of Brandeis's many, many, many legal opinions slightly off, forgive us a little bit. We're not legal experts.
1: When it comes to some of the legal eagle stuff, we're going to talk more broadly and generally. And please know that anytime we're talking about any of these cases, whether they're cases that he argued as a lawyer or cases that he ruled on as a justice, um, we're probably missing some of the nuance and the nitty gritty. There's probably great legal podcasts out there that get into that a little bit more. Uh, We're going to talk just a little bit more, though, about the man, his life, and where he fits in in the movement of progressivism in the United States. So Louis Brandeis was born in Kentucky, 1856. So he's born just kind of before the Civil War. His parents were Jewish immigrants from Prague. Uh, his family comes over like many Jewish refugees sort of come over fleeing pogroms and anti-Semitism in Europe. Uh, they settle in Kentucky. They liked Kentucky uh, for a bit <laughs> until the Civil War begins. And then they have to flee Kentucky because they are abolitionists. His Parents have really strong abolitionist beliefs. They are very uh, strong supporters of the union. And so they do have to leave Kentucky, uh, although they will sort of come back. But that, you know, definitely they're already a little bit outsiders as Jewish immigrants. And then as these sort of pro-union folks, they're also a little bit on the outside. It's really no surprise that Louis Brandeis is an exceptionally gifted student. He's very bright. That's obvious kind of immediately from childhood. He is going to be super dedicated to his studies. He's going to win like a myriad of awards. And as a preteen and teen, he's going to graduate super early from high school. He's going to graduate so early that he decides to travel a bit. He goes to Germany and studies for two years to get kind of an additional education. And he really credits those two years in Germany with his success in the law because he learns how to think critically. He learns um, more advanced sort of reading, writing, and... um, rhetoric than he had learned in in his education growing up. So those two years are really important. So he comes back and he starts law school at the ripe old age of 18. So by the time he's 18, he has graduated from school, traveled, done two extra years of schooling in Germany. He's done, this is all university level. And then he's like, oh, I'm 18. I guess I'll start law school now.
0: Right. And he speaks multiple languages. He grew up speaking German in the home. He has a real flair for languages. So he speaks a few languages and he decides at 18 years old at a time when most of his peers are going to Harvard undergrad, he decides to go to Harvard law school. So that's kind of where we're at. (laughs) He starts Harvard law and he graduates in two years because again, we're not done with the like superlative accomplishments. So what normally takes people three years takes him two.
1: Uh, Two, and he he excels in those two years. It's really remarkable.
0: He really does. He graduates at the top of his class, like literally number one in his class. And so what better thing to do than start a firm with the guy who graduates number two in his class? And so that's what they do. They start a firm in Boston and he's going to be... incredibly successful. The firm actually still exists uh, in Boston today. It's under a different name now, but the firm that he creates and he's very like, this is the 1890s. He's a young man and he's particularly interested in the right to privacy. He's going to basically pioneer what the right to privacy is as a lawyer for many years. And then again, as a Supreme court justice. So that's going to be his big thing. Uh, He does make himself a good bit of money though, over the course of his legal career, he makes himself a millionaire before he uh, joins the Supreme court, but that's going to be kind of his big deal is privacy law.
1: So just to kind of contextualize this a little bit, I want to just kind of talk about his time at Harvard a little, um, because he enters Harvard Law School at a time where the study of law is really starting to change in the United States. We're moving away from this sort of traditional rote memorization of existing legal standards and legal theory and moving more to a more flexible and interactive practice of the law, which is, I think, what we think of lawyers today doing, right? A lawyer is going to use rhetoric. They're going to use, interpretation. They're going to take past cases, um, but they're also going to take other data and information and they're going to use persuasion, right? You know, if you think of all the great law shows and law movies, that's kind of how lawyers work today. But that was really just coming around when Brandeis enters law school. So he also, the timing is so perfect because he has the right mind for that. He has that critical thinking. He has that rhetoric. um, So he's a perfect fit for how things are saying. And he's like really obsessive during his time as a law student. He once wrote a letter to a friend speaking of his, quote, desperate longing for more law, end quote. And he referred to the law as his mistress multiple times in correspondence. So he's really, really passionate about this. And best I can tell from research, he's definitely more interested in law than women at this time. He is like such a you know nose to the grindstone kind of kid. He studies so intensively that he starts to lose his eyesight. He's not even 20 yet, and he's starting to go blind from all that reading by gaslight. And so he ends up paying fellow students to read out loud to him. And this will continue to be true throughout his career. He'll pay clerks, assistants, paralegals, all sorts of people to read to him because he ruins his eyesight as a law student. As Rebecca mentioned, he graduates valedictorian, first in his class, and he has the highest GPA in the history of the school, which is a record he holds for 80 years. So it is not until we get into sort of the modern era of Harvard Law, into kind of the 1960s and 1970s, that we see people surpass what Brandeis achieved, which I think is really remarkable because he went to school with some pretty sharp people, including including Samuel Warren, who becomes his law partner, the man who graduated second in his class. Samuel Warren is actually going to come up a little bit later, um, so I want to kind of keep him in mind. But the two of them are a perfect pair. They both have the Harvard credentials and connections, which is good. Warren comes from money which is very, very helpful. Brandeis does not. He comes from a solidly middle-class immigrant family, but Warren is blue-blooded, he's back bay, um, he's very connected in Boston. So this really helps Brandeis build that uh, wealth and accessibility. Um, and I think that's important context because Brandeis on paper does what every, you know the American dream is supposed to be. His family comes over, he works hard and he makes himself a millionaire. Uh, and I think we have a lot of ideas about what it means by the time you become a millionaire how you're going to feel about your money and about your rights. And Brandeis definitely is going to take a hard veer uh, to the left. Um, The first time that Brandeis argues before the Supreme Court is in 1889, Wisconsin Central Railroad versus Price County, and he wins. So imagine winning your first Supreme Court case. This is really good juice for his law firm. And he starts to build up, though, a reputation of only taking cases if he truly believes they're good cases. So here's a guy. He's got all the cred. He's killing it out there in the field, but he refuses to take cases if he thinks they're bad. He refuses to take cases if he thinks they're unethical or immoral. He refuses to take people's money if he doesn't think it's worth fighting. Uh, And he really innovates what is now the standard for law firms, which is to be brought on to businesses to consult so you can help your clients avoid legal problems in the first place. So he goes to businesses in Boston and says, why are you paying these lawyers to argue bad cases for you? You just need to not get yourself in these situations to begin with. So he's really innovating what we consider sort of the role of the law firm in the 20th century. And you're absolutely right. That law firm that he founded still exists as Nutter, McClenn, and Fish, which is just a really law firmy name.
0: That's an X. Ex- that's one of those like you enter names into a like uh, a random generator and you come out with a law firm. That's the kind of name that is. Uh, he is also um, in addition to privacy law which we'll talk about in a bit, he's also really, he knows a lot about financial law too. Like he's involved in business. uh, And so later on, when he starts talking about trusts and uh, financial dealings, he really knows what he's talking about, which is not, I think, a skill that necessarily is a crossover there. Like he really understands the ins and outs of financial matters and the uh, markets and how uh, trusts work, monopolies work. And so he really, that is going to be something he's going to bring to bear uh, as well as his progressive, politics. Um, His personal life, he, in 1891, he marries his second cousin. Her name is Alice Goldmark. Uh, He's 34 and hasn't really dated very much. He doesn't really seem like that's his Deal. They settle in Beacon Hill in Boston, and they have two daughters. Uh, she is often in poor health, though, and so he's actually going to be uh, another, but someone who really is going to juggle his career along with the domestic responsibilities of raising his children and keeping a home. And uh, his wife is kind of intermittently ill throughout most of their uh, life together. So he's doing all of this like really interesting legal stuff, and presumably reading an awful lot, and you know working hard and. Also, like caring for his children and managing his uh, household, and and he's increasingly wealthy, so it's clear that he's got help to do this. But still, that's a lot of responsibility in an era when men weren't really that interested in doing these kinds of things. And I feel like it's really going to inform a lot of his progressive politics. He, um, and this is a little bit of a spoiler, but he is eventually going to switch his, change his mind, and publicly state that he changes his mind about women's suffrage. He was originally a to it. But he saw how hard his wife's sister worked towards suffrage. And he is literally going to write in uh, the 19 teens that he has changed his mind. Women deserve, we can't be a democracy if women are not allowed full participation in it. And I feel like some of that has got to come from his understanding of what it's like to operate in the domestic sphere because of his wife's illness. Like I can only imagine that is a very, very important part of what he's dealing with.
1: Absolutely. I also think it's really fascinating because if you read about Brandeis kind of leading up to his time before he gets really involved in national politics, he is, as you said, he's really establishing himself financially. He's reaching this certain strata within society, but they don't really carry a lot of the markers of that. They're not hosting big parties. They don't socialize outside of their kind of close-knit circle of friends and colleagues. Um, They don't travel a lot because of his wife's illness. They're not Blowing money on kind of these expensive, fancy things. He's sort of most interested in like going out to a little cabin, going in nature. He thinks all the fresh air is really good for his wife. Like that's his idea of like a nice getaway. He's not interested in what I think a lot of gentlemen of means were doing in that era. And so it really sets him apart. I find him so unique in that time.
0: I read a note that he had a canoe. He's really he into canoeing. Loved. That was... <laughs> That was his jam. Like when men of his rank and station and wealth were like buying yachts, like this is the gilded age. Like he's, this is the 1890s. People are spending money. And he's like, no, I got a canoe. Like I'm good. And he like really lives the sort of values that he espouses, which I find to be unique and lovely.
1: <laughs> um. So during this time, as he's sort of Building uh, his like law law career, um, he really starts to embrace kind of the tenets of progressivism in this era. What he does is basically pioneers pro bono legal work, the idea that you will argue cases and you're not going to charge your clients anything because they can't afford it, because they need the legal representation and it's the right thing to do. And that maybe if you get a settlement or if money comes out of it, then you get your share. But you know, he took on work simply because it was the right thing to do. He also devoted himself to one hour a day of public service or volunteering. And he encouraged all those who worked with him to do the same. So that meant every single day, I mean, I think we all try to maybe volunteer a little bit or do do a little good. Every single day, he was setting aside an hour to give back, to be engaged in his community, to hear a case or talk to a client who may never have had a chance to have a lawyer of his caliber. And that's just an ethos he's going to take with him all the way to the Supreme Court.
0: It really is. He talks about how, you know, your leisure time should be partly devoted to helping others and making sure that people who have less have the ear of those who have more. And so he's really very much like a pioneer of he's going to sort of invent the idea of pro bono in sort of these big law firms because that's what he's who he's interacting with and so he's going to very much sort of uh, volunteerism is a big thing that he espouses which is really amazing i mean considering all that he's doing managing a firm managing his home and then devoting like literally an hour every day to volunteer work and pro bono work is really incredible I don't know when he slept. He must not have slept. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he really is an advocate for changing the law to adapt to changing times, which is really unusual. It is a time of great change in the country, the 1890s, early 1900s, but in the law and in the legal profession, there's still a lot of old-fashioned ideas. Uh, And he's basically saying, the world has rapidly changed in my lifetime. The law must change to adapt with it. We cannot use legal precedents from 100 years ago to apply to the the world of today, um, which is a really sort of radical thing to advocate for. It's something we still very much debate today. And he's saying, you know, we have to we have to adapt. And he includes that to really turn his attention to the government, the role of the government, the role of corporate power, uh, and really to say, you know, we have to fight corruption. uh, And we have to fight corruption legally. And that might mean changing our laws to do so.
0: And he writes in 1890, he writes something of a Harvard Law Review article called The Right to Privacy. And he's basically going to essentially create an arm of the law, uh, which is still something that we talk about today. Privacy law is still something that we deal with. And so he's really, this is, he pioneers, and Brandeis could turn a phrase, like he's got a bunch of really quotable stuff, but this is one of them. He says that we have the right to be let alone, which is... Really, kind of an interesting concept. Like, we have.
1: And it is not technically in the Constitution. It is not in the Constitution.
0: <laughs> and he says that, and he's talking about at the time, the ed- edge of technology is going to be photographs, you know, and this will of something that evolves in his life- lifetime and continues to evolve past his lifetime. But like, how government interacts with technology as far as our individual rights and liberties. And the idea that he's basically going to create is that we as individuals have rights that the government cannot penetrate, that we are as individuals have a right, the rights to privacy. And he, you know, there's a legal scholar who says that he does nothing less than add a chapter to our laws, which is really kind of incredible. He's going to really argue in favor of what are now sort of standard legal principles, but at the time was very much not. uh, Sort of how, what rights the government has as opposed to what rights individuals have. So he, right to privacy, and this is something he will continue to come back to throughout the rest of his legal career, uh, is a big almost invented by Brandeis. I don't want to say invented, that's not the right word, but really sort of pioneered by him. Uh, the idea that there is a right that. The government can't touch. The other thing that he does is he issues, and right around the same time, he writes a speech called The Living Law, which is he's going to, um, he believes that the Constitution and the law has to adapt as we sort of move forward. Like he is an originalist and he really believes in the Constitution, but that it means nothing if it doesn't continue to adapt as times change. So he's really, He's not what we would call a strict constructionalist or constitutionalist today. Like, he really believes the law has to adapt.
1: And, you know, these are things that sort of I think we take for granted today, things like right to privacy and the idea that law, law should – to a sense, adapt to the world. But this is really so groundbreaking. Prior to his Right to Privacy essay, there were almost no laws, even on a state level, that protected any individual privacy rights. And within 20, 30 years of him writing that, almost every state has passed statutes and laws. So there's a huge impact to what he's doing. Uh, And I love that basically adding like a chapter to our law, because that's absolutely what he does. He also, um, about 17 years later in 1907, is going to issue something called the Brandeis Brief, which is a, a new way of writing legal briefs. He essentially is going to take relatively new methods of thought from the social sciences, so things like social research and data gathering, and he's going to integrate this in with standard legal concepts to argue cases. So he's basically going to say there is legal weight If we look at social science, if we look at analytics and data, we can actually make legal decisions using that information. So this is something that I think the 21st century, we're very analytically driven and we're very data driven. And he's introducing it 100 years later. This has really become the standard method. Um, It's not uncommon to see a brief that's going to feature those social sciences and that social data. So it's it's no small contribution that Brandeis makes just as a lawyer. You definitely start to get a sense of he's going politically. Politically, In the early 1900s, as Rebecca said, it's the Gilded Age, uh, and he's very much in the gilded status. Um, he's not like a J.P. Morgan, for example, but he's certainly wealthy. And he's, you know picked himself up by his bootstraps. He's done the whole thing. But instead of just kind of settling into his class, he's going to sort of fight against it. In 1906, he devises a plan in Massachusetts to protect small wage earners through savings bank life insurance. This is in response to a massive insurance fraud that had happened in the early 1900s that had built hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Massachusetts citizens, most of them just hourly wage workers out of their life savings. So he pioneers life insurance, uh, which is kind of uh, crazy. And then the next year, he takes on J.P. Morgan. He takes on one of the biggest sort of robber barons of the era. Uh, This is a six-year fight that Brandeis launches to prevent Morgan from monopolizing railroads in New England. And so he's not shy about taking on these big names and big money. And more and more, he starts to see that we cannot exist as the democracy that he loves so if we don't have checks and balances. He says, we may have democracy or we may have wealth concentrated in the hands of the few, but we can't have both.
0: And he really, he's going to switch parties about this time, because at this point, the Republican Party is moving sort of away from the Teddy Roosevelt progressivism. Um, that's not as in vogue anymore. And he is really sort of committed to these popular progressive causes. Uh, at this point, he's not accepting money for public interest cases when he takes the um, a, law, a law case that's public interest, which makes him very popular. He's very much in favor of regulation and trust busting, and uh, he's very anti-monopolist which is sort of falling out of favor with the uh, William Howard Taft Republican Party. I know how you love Taft, Becca, but I, just, do, I, I do. I uh, do. William Howard Taft and Brandeis were frequently like not They on were on s- the
1: court together. No, but they're not, <laughs> they not sat on, on the, the, same the same page day. in a lot of ways. They were not on the same page. This may sound familiar to you guys if you listen to our episode on the election of 1912, where we sort of talked about where Taft had taken the Republican Party, where Teddy Roosevelt had moved, and kind of then where Woodrow Wilson as a Democrat sort of slides in. And Brandeis is right there in the center of that because he is much more in the vein of of a Theodore Roosevelt Republican, very much so. Um, But he sees the way the party is moving and he disagrees with it heavily. He sees how much corporate interest there is. He sees how much money these politicians are taking in, how much corruption there is. And so he very publicly switches party and becomes a Democrat.
0: And but this time he's pretty famous. Like he's not like super super well known, but he's well known. He's well known as for progressive causes. He's well known as uh, like sort of the people's lawyer. Like he really has this national reputation as being somebody on the forefront uh, in the legal profession. And he's going to very publicly back Woodrow Wilson in a large part because he's in favor of regulation, and so is Woodrow Wilson. Like you know, cr- crushing a lot of these trusts and uh, anti-monopolism. And Woodrow Wilson wants to nominate. Brandeis as either Attorney General or Secretary of Commerce, but he doesn't, he has made so many enemies in the corporate world and the business world that they're going to basically shout down his potential nomination. And so, what Woodrow Wilson does. Well, first of all, he helped shake the Federal Reserve Act and is an author of the Federal Trade Commission, which are two things that are still very much with us. Uh, he then, Woodrow Wilson, is going to surprise nominate Brandeis for the Supreme Court in, 19, in January of 1916. And it's not a surprise to Brandeis, but it's a surprise to basically everybody else. And he's like, hey, this is my nominee. And there's a huge outcry. And it should be mentioned. And it's hard to parse from like sort of the reading about this. Brandeis is the first... He becomes the first Jewish Supreme Court justice. So he's obviously the first Jewish nominee to the Supreme Court. And so it's very hard to parse how much of the opposition to him was anti Semitic or anti progressive politics. And there's very clearly both of that in his nomination fight, which was the longest nomination fight in Supreme Court history at the time and for decades afterward. William Howard Taft is going to resist his nomination. And some of it is tinged with anti Semitism. He's a uh, Brandeis. Is accused of, quote, Old Testament cruelty, which is super gross. William Howard Taft talks about him being emotional and a socialist and a muckraker. And it just all has this very like anti-Semitic cast to it. Uh, he also is opposed by JP Morgan, among other people of that ilk, sort of the rich industrialists. There's a lot of cartoons about how, you know, Wilson's putting Brandeis on the court to like take it to the old money interests. And so there's a lot of that. Anytime you're linking money with power, you're going to see, and and Jews, you're going to see some anti-Semitic tropes. So there's a lot of really nasty stuff that kind of comes out in his Supreme Court nomination. And in those days, the nominee doesn't testify in front of the Senate, which is kind of amazing to me. Like, how do you
1: not do that? Yeah, I think it's important context to know that like prior to Brandeis, typically what would happen is a president would nominate somebody. And there would just be a vote. And usually it was a vote by party lines or it was a pretty up and down vote. And that was kind of it. There was not what we have today. We expect the circus. We have, you know, we have Supreme Court justice or we have nominations for the court. There's hearings. There's all this stuff. There's very often very volatile voting. That starts with Brandeis. This is the first time in our history we have that. And I will say, Rebecca, obviously, on this podcast is well stated for not being a fan of Woodrow Wilson. And I share that, but I have to say, it took some cojones Dust. for Woodrow Wilson to nominate Brandeis, and and really. The fact that like, oh, well, I can't nominate him for attorney general. He's not going to get confirmed. I can't make him secretary of commerce. He's not going to get confirmed. I guess I'll try putting him on the court is a huge leap. And Woodrow Wilson throws a lot of weight behind this nomination. And so if we were to find a silver lining or a place where Wilson does good, I think it's with this nomination because a lot of presidents would have just said, it's not worth the fight. It's not worth the battle. Um, He basically had Brandeis as a shadow advisor anyway. Brandeis was still very involved in his administration. He could have left it at that, but Wilson sees the value in putting Brandeis on the court. And so the fact that Wilson did this and, and stuck behind it, he never wavered in his belief that Brandeis is the best person for the court and that obviously Brandeis will be a voice for Wilson and his his politics, especially when it comes to things like regulation and economic policy. But this is a four month fight and Wilson never backs down. And I, I, I will give him his his props there.
0: Listen, so will I like history is made by complicated people and nobody's all bad or all good. That's my firm belief. Wilson is not all bad. Mostly bad, but not all bad. He does, and this is an election year, too. This is January of 1916. So the election is looming. And in fairness, like the Supreme Court wasn't like super politicized like it is today. Like it wasn't the like really center of the universe that it has become. But this is a four month 125 day fight for this nomination, which is the longest in history until you get to Merrick Garland and we're not going to go into that. But this is like a big deal. And in those days, not only did nominees not talk, they didn't speak at their confirmation hearing, they didn't talk at all. Like they didn't talk to the press. They allowed the administration to do their talking for them, which has in some ways carried over till today. But Brandeis was supposed to just listen to these attacks to him and keep his mouth shut. And he's like, no, I don't think... That's not really how I'm going to do that. He sets kind of a rapid response process. He has like all these attacks on him are going to be telegraphed to his office and he files them away so he could figure out what the right response is going to be. Telegraph it back and his proxies are going to say this. Like he has this he understands how negative publicity is going to affect his nomination. And so it's really kind of an interesting look into. And another thing that I think he kind of unwittingly creates is sort of the modern Supreme court fight in front of the Senate. Like he's very much going to keep this nomination alive. Like he clearly wants it and is going to have his proxy sort of have his back, including Wilson, who does stick with him.
1: Well, and I think, I think, too, because of the anti-Semitism, because the fact that he is the first Jewish nominee, he has to walk such a careful line. And I think that's why he's so adamant in kind of setting up this rapid response, because he can't just call out the anti-Semitism. It's an unfair burden. But he can't just say, you're saying this because I'm Jewish, which was probably like 80 percent of the attacks on him. Instead, he has to really... Painstakingly fight from a critical, you know, critical thinking perspective. He has to pick apart their arguments against him. He has to basically build a legal case for himself, and he has to take out the anti-Semitism, which is so must have been so frustrating. It's frustrating, like you said, when you look at those political cartoons, when you read some of the quotes about what what's said about him in the newspapers by big papers like the New York Times and these big media centers, uh, he had to fight against that, but he had to do it in the right way. And I think that's a big part of why he builds kind of that rapid response process that he has, because he can't just call it out for what it is. So he has to pick it apart and kind of take the lawyer route.
0: Which is so, like, very savvy of him to sort of take the lawyer route i mean he is a lawyer obviously and a pretty good one but it's just so interesting how in the nomination fight gets personal and it's just deeply like particularly from the removal of over 100 years there's so many things that are said about him that are just terrible and mean Um, not that like that has changed like there are mean things said about supreme court nominations like today but they're not like i don't know i don't feel like they're as personal maybe
1: directly personal? Typically, I guess it kind of depends, but typically not. Um, one particular thing that comes up in the nomination has to do with Brandeis's old partner, Samuel Warren. And when I read about this, I was just so struck that this, this comes up in the nomination because it's so personal and it's so cruel. Uh, Samuel Warren and Brandeis were partners. They were very good friends. They were very close as colleagues and also on a personal level. Warren eventually leaves the law to run his family's paper company, but he keeps Brandeis as a close ally, Uh, and he has Brandeis uh, give him legal advice, he has Brandeis give him business advice, and at, uh, at some point, Brandeis establishes a family trust for Warren. But Samuel Warren's brothers are going to accuse Brandeis of structuring this trust to benefit Samuel over all the other brothers. Now, that may or may not have been true, by all accounts, it seems like the trust was pretty standard because Samuel was doing a bulk of the work running the family's paper company. But this gets into a very ugly dispute. It's like family, you know, the, the brothers are going to sue. Uh, it's a whole thing. Uh, it's a very big public nasty fight because of the notoriety of these families in Massachusetts. And it all ends when Samuel commits suicide in 1910. So Brandeis's first law partner, his close colleague from Harvard Law, one of his closest friends, takes his own life in 1910. 1910, all because of a document that Brandeis created, doing what he thought was the right thing and the best thing to do. And this comes up in the nomination. Warren's brothers will send proxies to sort of tell this story. All these legal experts come in and they basically use it to question Brandeis's ethics and his integrity, which I think... Of all the things we know about Brandeis, we certainly know he was a man of integrity. This is a man who wouldn't take a case if he thought it was bad, if he thought it was unjust or unfair. Uh, He wasn't going to go out and represent somebody who wasn't a good person. And so to have this really personal event and this horrible loss dragged back up is just so awful for Brandeis. And I I can't imagine today even something that's equivalent to that, really, taking kind of his worst moments and then having them debate it for days on whether it shows that he was unethical in his business dealings. Yeah.
0: And being unable to respond publicly because you're, you yeah, know, which isn't terrible. And in the end, like the irony about all this, in the end, the vote for him to put him on the Supreme Court is not even close. It's 47 to 22. And three Republicans cross party lines uh, to vote for him, including Robert La Follette, who's a great big progressive from the Midwest. And so he's now on the Supreme Court and he's got a long tenure on the Supreme Court. He's uh, put on the court in 1916. He will stay on the court until 1939. Like he's there for a while and he's really going to establish himself in a couple places, particularly progressive causes, the right to privacy. And he's also going to be, again, inv- involved in sort of all of this a lot of trust busting and financial dealings so he's really um, very focused like economic inequality he's also going to be not the hugest fan of Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal like he takes a weird turn about that Um, but he you know kind of he invents the phrase laboratories of democracy. Like if you've ever heard that phrase, that's Brandeis. Uh, He, what he means by that is uh, that small scale communities, citizens can govern themselves. And that he invents another phrase uh, that's really, really great, uh, which is uh, other people's money. Like he writes a whole book about other people's money. And he writes about how he, he's got a, like a gift for this, the curse of bigness, uh, when he's talking about big banks and big trusts. Um, and the idea that, you know, oligarchs like JP Morgan are taking risks with other people's money, and that they can't understand. And so he's going to anticipate in a large way, the crash of the stock market in 1929. So he sees this coming. And there's an I read an article, this guy said, if he had been around in 2008, he would have seen that coming because he really sort of anticipates and very much champions uh, FDR creating what is known as the Glass-Steagall Act, which is going to help usher in 70 years of progress as far as separating banks from commercial banks uh, and securities. So he's really going to be, he's got the know-how to understand both privacy law and these really intricate financial dealings.
1: Yeah, he's what very few Supreme Court justices, I think, are, which is an an economist in many ways. He understands the economy and he understands the financial world in a way that is uncommon, I think, For lawyers, but particularly in this era when we're talking about lawyers and judges, Um, I like that you mentioned his tenure on the court because he's on the court for like 25 years. But he's 60 when he's nominated, so he's not a spring chicken when he comes onto the court. He's, you know, in this era, 60s getting pretty close to life expectancy for a man, and yet he's sort of just starting. So this last phase of his career uh, and his life is so significant, but it happens at a time where most people were retiring, most men of his wealth. And stature, we're like packing it up and living a life of leisure. And he puts himself on the court. Wilson puts him on the court, but you know, he gets himself on the court, and he is often in the minority on the court. I think that's important to note. He's so influential, but he is frequently in the minority. Some of his most important writings are dissents. They're rebuttals to the standard practice. I mean, he's on the court with William Howard Taft, a man that he criticized repeatedly when Taft was president. Uh, He criticized policies and now the two of them on the court. Taft is the chief justice and the courts at that time mostly uh, leans more conservative, more to kind of the Taft idea of what role government plays in people's lives. And so Brandeis is kind of that fiery minority. And we, up to this point on the court, hadn't quite had that dynamic yet where we had a single person in the minority who really was like a public figure, who really was writing these, usually dissents up to this point were like useful from a legal perspective, but they weren't capturing the public's imagination. Brandeis changes that. These dissents really get disseminated. They get read. Um, they're very influential in law schools. And so um, when I think about what the Supreme Court is like in the modern era, it really traces back to Brandeis. And it, it, I, I'm so glad you mentioned, right, a privacy is so key. But also the First Amendment rights. He's a very strong advocate for freedom of speech, freedom of the press, um, freedom of religion, understandably. I love one of his big cases is Gilbert versus Minnesota, um, which is a freedom of speech case. Case, and he is again in the minority he's a dissenter Gilbert was a Minnesotan who uh, was basically kind of involved in anti he he was a, a pacifist he was against United States involvement in World War I and so he's arrested for sedition he's arrested for treason for not opposing our involvement and uh, this court case is upheld the case the court upholds the conviction of Gilbert for this but you know Brandeis is saying wait a second we very much have a right to criticize the government. And if if we take that out of the freedom of speech, what is even the point? If freedom of speech can't include criticizing the government, it's, it's useless. And that's so key. I think about how often that has come up.
0: And because I can't go too long without criticizing Wilson, like I have to return, like I can't imagine that held him in good stead with Wilson. Like Wilson was very much in favor of all of these like seditious acts and things like that of, you know, once the war comes, Wilson's going to really crack down on speech. And Brandeis is like, no, really, we should not do that. Like, that's not great. Uh, Another case that he writes a, dissent is called Liggett and Lee, which is about anti-monopoly. You can hear him being anti-corporate and anti-monopoly. This is going to be something that John Paul Stevens, a modern justice, is going to quote this dissent in his own dissent for Citizens United. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is going to say publicly that she didn't think Brandeis, would, who is her hero on the court, that she didn't think that he would have been a big fan of Citizens United. So that's another thing. Like he's, His dissents are still quoted. And the case that I really want to like dig in a little bit on uh, is Olmstead. Uh, Olmstead v. U.S. is a right to privacy case, and it is Brandeis's dissent makes it. Um, and Olmstead, first of all, like a little background on the case: Roy Olmstead was a bootlegger, and he's fascinating. All on his own, and we should do a total pot about him because he was kind of cool.
1: <laughs> Alleged bootlegger. No, I'm yeah, no,
0: he was convicted. My Didn't
1: lawyer's advised. No, no, no,
0: he was convicted. <laughs> That's the whole point of this case. Uh, allegedly, they, allegedly, allegedly. In the nineteen twenties, <laughs> the wiretapping technology is like brand new. And the government, he's, Roy Olmstead's based in Seattle, Washington. And they're going to tap his business lines, his phone lines, and get all the incriminating dirt. Because And the
1: streets. They literally wiretap streets mm-hmm. surrounding his home, which wiretapping is already such a huge violation of yes. privacy. But like, not only do they go inside, they're literally uh, wiretapping these streets, which means they're picking up conversations from totally... Un, you're just normal everyday people. Yes. Oh, sorry, I just have to point that out. It's so crazy to me how expansive their use of wiretaps were in the Olmstead case. And so Ro- Olmstead's convicted and he's going to, he's going to,
0: appeal because he says that the wiretaps are a fourth and fifth amendment violation. And the, it goes all the way to Supreme court. And it is a technical case. It involves technology. It involves literally the, where the wiretaps are and how they're used. But basically the court finds for the government, they say that no Olmstead's fourth and fifth amendment rights were not violated. And Brandeis is like, Whoa, hold up here. Let's stop the presses. And he writes this blistering dissent about privacy, about the overreach of government, and it's just so far-reaching in his scope. He talks about how, you know, the government's going to can do what the government does. The idea we have to, there has to be a check on uh, people going too far. And I'm going to read a quote here, which the particularly the last line of it, I think is amazing, but here it is. Experience should teach us to be most on our guard to protect liberty when the government's purposes are beneficent. Men born to freedom are naturally alert to repel invasion of their liberty by evil-minded rulers. The greatest dangers to liberty lurk in insidious encroachment by men of zeal, well-meaning but without understanding." And every time I read that quote, It like rocks me back, particularly that last line like, well meaning men, but without understanding. Like, how wow! Like, that's. He knew his business, man. Like, that is some <laughs> stuff. Like, it is such a big quote that it is actually painted on the the one of the doors in the House of Representatives. Like, I have a picture of it right near the speaker's office, in fact. Like, this is a big, he's talking about wiretapping, but he's also talking about technology that has not been invented yet. He's envisioning, uh, and he writes in the Olmstead dissent, he's envisioning a way in which the government can get in and read your files and sort of, he's sort of all this technology that there's no basis for at that time. Brandeis is seeing that the government is going to continue to try to do this and that it is the job of the courts to sort of rein in the government when the government's getting a little too ahead of itself. Uh, And it just, the quote just rocks me back on my heels every time I hear it. It's like, wow, like he knew what he was about. This is, it's just really brilliant.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's just, um, I'm so glad you mentioned, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and, and what an inspiration he was for her. Uh, And I think for a lot of Supreme Court justices who will follow Brandeis, this willingness to use the dissents, to call it like it is, to put the onus on those in power, uh, to make it clear that there are men with power, with money, with government, the the arm of the government, and um, the weight of the government who are making choices, right? Uh, And I, 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 I love, you could do, we could do a whole podcast of Brandeis quotes, but I love the way in which he used these dissents. And you can see it's all of that schooling, all of that intelligence pours out in these, and it changes the game for justices. We see after Brandeis, justices take up those reins. And even if you aren't in the majority opinion, you can use your position and your knowledge and your skills to make compelling legal arguments, even in the dissent. And that's, that's uh, again, another thing that Brandeis really pioneers. And just to
0: circle back just for a second, back to the Olmstead case, that's eventually going to be overturned. Uh, Brandeis doesn't live to see it, but it is going to eventually the Supreme Court, like as surveillance technology really takes off in the 50s and 60s in the Cold War, and Brandeis is dead by this point, but the Warren court is going to really sort of revisit Olmstead and be like, wow, Brandeis was onto something. And so, you know, Justice Potter Stewart is going to basically overturn Olmstead in a 1967 case called Cass v. U.S. And so he's so far ahead of his time and so forward-thinking that a lot of the stuff that he writes, the reason that his dissents are so important is because eventually they're going to become majority opinions. So Olmstead, he writes a dissent that eventually becomes the majority opinion 25 years later. So that's sort of Brandeis' real gift, and that's I think why. And he also is going to pioneer having like a progressive end of the court, and sort of that's another one of his big legacies and one that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is herself going to acknowledge that she holds, like she's the progressive end of the court in very much a Brandeis tradition. And she actually stated publicly that she wanted to be on the court as long as he was. That was one of her goals is to sort of remain on the court as long as uh, Brandeis was. So she really does take a lot of inspiration uh, from him. Uh, And the progressive wing of the court is really, he's gonna kind of create that.
1: Yeah, that's really incredible. Um, We could, uh, we are again, not lawyers or uh, judges or legal scholars. But um, you could really, if you're interested in that, we'll put some things in the show notes. There are just case after case after case. Where Brandeis is going to write dissents or uh, write opinions that are going to be cited for years and years to come, that are going to be so influential, things that we really do take for granted uh, when it comes to ideas like free speech and the right to privacy, that are just so so key to what I think we think of when we think of the United States today. I think it's also important to mention that around the time he's in his 50s, he starts getting more involved with Jewish movements, with Jewish politics, as it were, really sort of fighting for. For Jewish rights in the United States. He becomes involved in the American Zionist movement. He's going to try to influence Woodrow Wilson to recognize Jewish homeland in Palestine. So Brandeis, as a younger man, seems to be more cautious about being outspoken or or particularly engaged around his religion and his culture, but as he gets older and I think has that platform, he then sort of leans into using that platform to advocate for those causes, and that becomes a really important part of of his late life. As Rebecca mentioned, he's on the court until 1939, so he really does see his way uh, through the Depression and through the New Deal. He's going to retire from the court in February of 1939, really because he's just not up to it health-wise at this point. I think if he could have, he would have stayed on the court until he died. I don't think this was a man who wanted to retire, but eventually— He's truly blind at this point. He cannot read. He's in terrible health. And he'll die from a heart attack about a year and a half later in October of 1941 at the age of 84. So he lives a long life, a very important, successful life. That retirement from the court, he sort of at that point sort of uh, takes himself out of public life. Uh, He is interred today beneath the portico of a school that bears his name, the Brandeis School of Law at the University of Louisville in Kentucky. So there is a law school named after him, uh, as well as a number of other institutions named for him, but he is interred there. So if you go to Louisville and you go to the law school, that is where Brandeis is interred. Sometimes I get questions on my Arlington tour about whether he is laid to rest at Arlington because many of the men he served on the court with our late trust at Arlington, um, but he uh, goes back to Kentucky.
0: Yep, he's buried in Kentucky. He has a There's a university that bears his name in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and several schools kind of all over the place in the United States are going to have. Um, there's the Brandeis Center for Human Rights Under Law, which is uh, in D.C. It's to counter anti-Semitism in higher education. There's a village in Israel. Called Kafar Brandeis, which apparently translates to Brandeis Village. It's a suburb of the Israeli city of Hedera, which I love that they made it, you know, he was such a big Zionist. uh, And they're going to name a village after him, which is really great. And so that's Louis Brandeis, friends, Uh, our first Jewish Supreme Court justice, eminently quotable legal scholar, I think. Thank you guys for coming with us on our journey. And I even said nice things about Woodrow Wilson. So this has been a banner pod for sure. (laughs)
1: Ha, ha, ha. This has been a whole, a whole thing with you saying nice things with Woodrow Wilson. I hope that this will be the start of us looking at a few of our other uh, Supreme Court justices. Um, I think much in the way that we try to talk about presidencies and elections and the legislature, this is true for the court too. The court has changed and evolved, but a lot of the same things that the court debates and argues about today were true 100 years ago, were true 150 years ago, uh, were true 200 years ago. So I hope we get a chance to dig into the court a little bit more in our next in our next year Uh, we want to thank you guys so much for listening to the podcast as always if you have ideas if you want to pitch the pod You can get your topic on or your person or your event. Um, We're here to help. So you can pitch the pod by emailing us tourguidetellall at gmail.com. You can also follow us on the internets. Engage with us on social media at tourguidetell on Twitter and at tourguidetellall on Instagram and Facebook. As always, a huge, huge thank you to our patrons. You guys make this happen. You keep the lights on. You literally pay our bills uh, and keep this up and running. So we really, really appreciate you. If you're not a patron, you can always join for as little as three dollars a month Uh, we have a lot of extra content coming uh, for our patrons over the summer some special interviews and special guests so I'm really excited for what our patrons are going to get to see so become a patron and you won't miss out on anything cool
0: thank you all very much again we'll be back next week with some more exciting stuff and um, yeah thanks
1: bye thanks bye host, Candan Dan King and I do the intros, the editing, the admin. Becca Grahl and Rebecca Fafner do the research and the talking. We are all guides for free tours by foot in Washington, D.C. This is Tour Guide Tell All. Until next time...